Hello, everyone, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. Today's episode was recorded on August 26th, 2021. Today, I sit down with Brandon Greenway, a professional volleyball player now embarking on his next adventure in the German Bundesliga. In this episode, Brandon and I discuss so many things relating to athletics and life, the benefits of sport generalization, the life-changing policy of honesty, the importance of strong support networks and loved ones, as Brandon gushes about his soon-to-be wife, Alexis, the relationship between suffering and sacrifice, what constitutes motivation, and much more. Brandon has been a top act since the day that I met him. I'm glad that even when he has been my opponent, he has also been my friend. I hope you get as much out of listening to this as I got out of it being a part of it, as Brandon is a wealth of wholesome living, honesty, and knowledge. If you wish to hear more of Brandon and his podcast, 4 to 4, his social media links are in the show notes below. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm sitting with Brandon Greenway. Brandon is a volleyball alumni of Charleston University, where he played volleyball and studied accounting and business administration. Last year, he played volleyball professionally in the Danish Liga with Vichelin Volleyball Club. This coming year, he'll be returning to Europe to compete in the German Bundesliga with Bitterfield Wolfden Volleyball Club. Sticking with his passion of volleyball, Brandon runs a podcast with co-hosts Matthew Calloway and Peter Russell, where they discuss volleyball and everything athletics related. Brandon, thanks a lot for coming on, man. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, man, no problem. I appreciate you having me on. That was an incredible introduction, man. You had all the, all the accolades. You had it all. That was impressive. Yeah, I, uh, I had Dustin Watton on a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. I found that people that I don't talk to very often, that I don't have an ongoing relationship with, uh-huh. the introduction really helps to set the tone. Yeah. So I totally forgot to do an introduction with Dustin, so all the stuff is just off the cuff things that I had seen on his Wikipedia page or whatever before we talked, but I was in mad panic mode. And I think that (laughs) impacted the, the initiatory stages of the conversation for the first little bit. So yeah, we had a, we had Dustin on our podcast too. And Mm -hmm. uh, Dustin was awesome, man. He was incredible. I'm sure you had a great conversation with him. I keep up with your stuff. So I kind of know how you orchestrate this and I'm sure that you guys got into some good stuff, but he was so easy to keep a conversation with. I feel like there's anybody that, you would not have that initial starter with to kind of get it going. I feel like he would be perfectly fine with it. I think he was just tired. I mean, those, those U.S. guys before the VNL. I, it was after the VNL before them heading to the Olympics. So yeah. I think he was just beat up. Had to be done. I mean, that's like 30-something days straight of training. It's intense. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. When did you get into volleyball? I know that you talk on your podcast a lot about what it's like for young kids to generalize their sporting and to be multi-sport athletes and the impacts of that. So were you always yeah. a volleyball kid or were you big into <laughs> soccer, all these other things? Kind of yes, kind of no. One, the soccer thing super interesting. I think you bring that up, bring that up because I have made a correlation that I stand behind that like mm-hmm. all really, really good volleyball players previously were good soccer players. Like everybody who I talked to that I've met that are like really good professionals or in the USA gym, it's like they all have played soccer. I think that's hilarious. I did not. I was terrible. I played like one year. I got like four red cards because I was like seven and thought it was football. Um, so I was the same, right? It's European football, American. Exactly. Soccer. I got confused by the verbiage. Yeah, the um, language barrier. Yeah. But I, uh, so I got started in like fourth grade, kind of, kind of, sort of. So my sister's eight years older than me. And when she made, she made her high school varsity team as a freshman. And after two weeks after tryouts, her coach was like, I'm moving by and like left. Um, the athletic director knew about my dad because my dad's big in sports and he coached all around the area um, and asked if he wanted to do it. 
Uh, so my dad was our football coach at the time, American football. And um, he gave up coaching our football team to go do something with my sister. He had coached her like in second grade basketball, but wanted something while she was in high school. And me and my brother were not happy about it. So we were like, well, we're not going to play football then. Ended up signing me up to go to the, the gym for his volleyball practice Monday through Friday from four to six every single day. So I kind of got trapped in there. Now I'd do my homework and I'd sit there and I'd shoot baskets. And then after enough foul shots and misses with a volleyball, I was like, well, I should probably just try to learn this sport. Why not pick up on it? Um, so that's how I got started when I was younger. I didn't start playing competitive until freshman year, though, because uh, in Maryland, it's like impossible to find any sort of like men's volleyball, especially when I was growing up. It's growing a lot now. But when I was growing up, there was one club team in like pretty much the whole state of Maryland, only one high school conference had it and it was mostly guys that play lacrosse or something and look for something to do in the fall um so that's kind of how I got into it but when I was growing up I always thought I was going to be in the MLB I loved baseball my dad had uh not a stint but he actually got an offer to get into the Pirates like triple A team I think mm -hmm. um but he said no, no due to a girl who ended up not being my mom so I guess not really worth it but uh so I always had like a huge passion in my heart for baseball. So I played that all through, uh, all through middle school and then halfway through high school. And then it kind of ended there. What do you think the impacts were of playing so many sports? And it's funny because I see that correlation you make with soccer. I think there's some weird confound with Europeans because there were some Polish guys on the team that had never formally played soccer, but mm -hmm. could dribble a ball better than any North American that I'd ever met. Yeah. And it's just a thing in Europe that they're all, everyone plays soccer. Everyone has their favorite soccer teams. Yeah. Everyone, yeah. Everyone's they're like crazy about it. Yeah. It, it's it's it. really funny. It's really very interesting. Yeah. My soccer skills definitely developed a little bit when I was over there, just dribbling around in the gym before games. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because when you're in the U.S., when you're like messing around and have some free time on the volleyball court, everybody turns and starts shooting baskets and play basketball. And mm -hmm. over in Europe, everybody would just start playing soccer. It's kind of funny. It's interesting because I think that all of these different sports can add up in one sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basketball and volleyball seem to be in different fields or different areas in terms of that. But what I'm thinking about is baseball and some of the guys with the livest arms, the fastest arm swings that I've seen in volleyball used to be baseball pitchers or baseball players. And then like you yeah. said with soccer, a lot of it's footwork. And yeah. I've, I played a ton of lacrosse growing up. Yeah, but I'm same thing. Like a lot of like, because in those sports like lacrosse and soccer, you're making crazy cuts to like change your direction. And when you're at the net in volleyball or even back row, it's the exact same thing. So it's like when you've been doing that your whole life, yeah, you haven't learned the footwork of volleyball yet by chance, but like making a three step swing approach out to your right is the same as like making a cut over in soccer or a cut in lacrosse to go and give your opportunity for a goal. Like your feet are going to know what it's doing. Um, so I think, like for me, I think if you're, if you're somebody who enjoys sports, I'm not going to say everybody should play sports. Like there's some people that's just not their realm. They like their own kind of thing. But if you're somebody who's into sports and wants to play sports, especially growing up, you got to play like a thousand things, play as much as you can. Like every, cause then also if you, if you get into a situation where if I had only played volleyball my whole life growing up, I never played another sport competitively. Like the odds of me being burnt out and not wanting to keep going at the point where I am right now, where I'm 23 and I've been playing for 10 years, add it and make it 18 years that I've been playing that. And that's the only thing I've ever done. Eventually some, you're probably going to get burnt out. So it's nice, especially when you're growing up to have like that diversity and then be able to narrow down where you want to go. Do you think there's an optimal age for that specialization or level? 
See, that's where it gets really tough, especially with volleyball. Since there's a lot of late starters in volleyball, a lot of guys don't put down their other sport until they're like offered for college or something because they, they've only been playing volleyball two or three years. But now with the growth that it has and a lot of young guys doing it, you know, I, I never want to tell people not to because there's plenty of guys that I know that are incredible volleyball players who stuck with like football or in Maryland, we play in the fall, so you can play football and volleyball, but they would do volleyball, like hockey and baseball, and they stuck all three out and then would go on to play baseball. So I don't know if it's really a set time. Um, you can kind of do it either way, but I do feel like there's, for me personally, there is a point for me where I kind of cut everything out and it was all zoned in on volleyball. And I don't think I would have gotten college offers that I got had I not done that. But also the correlation that I had from baseball, I was a pitcher in baseball and I played second base. I was like the worst hitting player you've ever seen. I couldn't hit worth a shit. My dad would give me the bunt sign every time I got into the box. Um, so, but I, so I went straight to pitching because pitchers don't have to hit. You get DH, you're expected to be a shitty hitter. I was like, this is my role. Um, and I was a pretty solid pitcher, but I think that the, the mechanics and everything and the arm strength that comes from that is the reason why knock on wood that my shoulder has been strong through my volleyball career so far and not really had too many tweaks or anything. It's just because going through all those mechanics and throwing a baseball 80 miles an hour, a thousand times every single day for like years, it's like you're building some crazy strength. Yeah, you make a very interesting point about beginning that when you're young as well. I know that long distance runners have more cartilage in their knees, especially if they start young. So that's an interesting epigenetic correlation where the younger you are and you start something, you're already developing not only movement and athletic literacy, but you're also building yourself up to do that thing for an extended period of time. Yeah, your body kind of like evolves to like the situation kind of when you put yourself in that situation five days a week, like we were just saying for so long, like your body's going to adjust. So like you said, with the runners, they get more cartilage in their knee because their knees are getting beat up every single day when they go on a run. Um, and not necessarily beat up in a bad way, but like building kind of like either a scar tissue or something to help like ground yourself. And it's, it's extremely, that's a, another reason why I say to do multiple sports. Cause you know, there's one where in soccer, you can get really strong legs and baseball, you can get a really strong shoulder and some like lacrosse, your stamina is through the roof. It's like, there's so many benefits to take from other sports. And then when you narrow down on that one that you really enjoy or really want to commit to, I think it just only will increase your kind of arsenal that you have. Mm -hmm, totally. Yeah. Diversifying is incredibly beneficial for people. What was the catalyst for you specializing? Uh, in terms of like stopping everything and going to volleyball? Yeah. Uh, it's actually kind of funny. So I was very big, same thing, lots of sports. I was doing travel volleyball, high school volleyball, travel baseball, high school baseball. And then I picked up hockey in the winter. I've always been a big hockey fan, but I had never, I've been a strong skater, but I never actually played hockey. Uh, so I did it my freshman year. Um, and then at that point, when I'm doing that much, I like was leaving one practice to show up 10 minutes late to the next practice and then go to another practice. And we were like, all right, you still got school and stuff like we need to, you can keep doing three sports, but we can't keep doing travel ball with all three sports. So um, I stopped hockey after my freshman year. Um, and then I was just stuck with baseball and volleyball that I was doing travel in high school. Um, and then my sophomore my freshman year, I, yeah, so my freshman and sophomore year, I played baseball. And then going into my junior year, I had the tryout, and I had uh, – I can't remember if I had stopped travel ball at this point. I think I was, like, kind of like, all right, we're going to set down travel ball and just focus on volleyball. But I still wanted to play high school. Um, and my dad's cousin – you still there? Yep. 
sorry, I don't know what just happened on my laptop. Some Adobe thing popped up. Um, so my dad's cousin who they were close and I didn't even know he was my cousin until I was already at the high school. He taught there and he was the coach of baseball. He just got the head coaching job uh, when I was trying out this junior year and he actually cut me. Uh, my dad's cousin cut me from the team and I was like, furious. yeah, yeah. And I was like, I wasn't mad. Like we've always been very much so like uh, the family, like th th that means nothing. Like just cause he's my cousin, no shot. Is he putting me on the team? Like he's just mm -hmm. taking who's better. But I knew like, I was like, I'm just as good as these other pitchers. Like I should be on the team. And he was like, you know, it's you and one guy in a grade below you, you guys were even. He's like, I have a roster spot for you but I cut you because I don't think you want to keep like wasting your time with this. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He was like, in all honesty, highest you're going to go in baseball is maybe D2, probably a D3. Um, he was like in volleyball, you have a lot more like hope and a lot more following. And you're like, he was just like, it's kind of what your bread and butter is becoming is like, I'm just giving you the option to like really focus in on that. And then I was like, all right. And like, I was never, I was never going to be like, okay, no, I still want to be rostered. Like I was on the cut list. It was posted as me on the cut list. If I show up first day of practice, that doesn't look good. And I kind of just my own like mentality. I, I don't want that. Like I want it to be a very clear cut, like you were in the spot. Um, so after that, I was like, all right, well, thanks uncle Harris. Like I'm, I'm done. I'll, I'm just doing volleyball. So then after that, everything stopped. I stopped doing baseball, hockey, basketball, all of it. Like, I think I did like a rec league in my senior year for basketball, but like just full focus on volleyball from there on. How do you cope and react to that reaction from your uncle Harris, where he says to you, Hey, there's something else that you would probably be better at. So go and do this thing. I can definitely see a lot of people that would react quite negatively to that and think that that's maybe an overstep. Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely, it definitely can be perceived that way. And if somebody, took it that way like I wouldn't necessarily be to be upset at them I understand like you're a 15 year old kid who's like dude I just want to play the sport like why are you doing why are you putting me in this situation so I totally understand that reaction um I was raised in a like military household everybody on my father's side aunts uncles every single one was in the military my dad was in the marine corps so it was I was always it was always a very like not harsh broad bringing up but like there was no like sugar coating there was no prizes for second place like I was it was all from the time I was like seven I was always given it very straight and very honest where it's like hey like hey you suck at hitting you're gonna bunt every time because you can't hit for shit until you can figure out how to hit you're not playing like, I mean, he was my dad's eight, or my brother's eighth grade basketball coach and my brother rode the pine. He never played because he just wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So we were always kind of raised that way where it's like, you know, if you're earn the spot or if you do this, you get it. So and I knew where I was in baseball. I knew he was right. You know, D3 was probably going to be my highest, which no hate to D3. I'm sure I would have had a great time if I had done it. Um, but I, I really took it like not even with a grain of salt. If anything, I was just like, really like motivated to work in volleyball now because I was like at that point I was like now I'm like one of the few guys who is only focusing in on one sport that was a multi-sport athlete so now I was like in my head I was like boom I'm a college athlete now like time to start training like one and that's all it was so I did really it takes a lot for people or for something to happen or somebody to do something to me to like make me really angry at them or like feel bad for myself just because the way I was raised was so aggressively competitive Okay, twofold question. One mm -hmm. being, how do you think that's impacted your training regimen for people to constantly be telling you what your faults are and how to improve upon them? And then on the other side, how do you think that 
honesty and truth telling has impacted your life? Yeah. So in terms of uh, the first one, what was the first one? Sorry. How do you think that people being honest with you about your faults has impacted your training regime? Okay. I remember. Yeah. So uh, 100%, I don't think I would be playing professional volleyball right now if I didn't have that. Because there's way too many athletes and situations, especially with younger kids, where it's like, you know, people are too scared to say they're bad at something. Which, and it sucks to hear. Like, I understand that. And maybe if there's kids that are, have a little bit more of an emotional side, I get wanting to be careful with that. But it's like, seriously, without that, I would have never probably been playing professional because if you can't, if you can't accept that you have faults, and I still do now, like where I know there's struggles in my game, if anything, being told what they were helped me to point them out myself. So now it's like, obviously, if somebody tells me something that's a fault, I'll understand it and I'll hear it out. But most of what I do wrong, I can see in myself now because of that, because I was always told, hey, you did this wrong. You're doing this wrong. So like instantly I was like, okay, I see how I was doing that wrong now. And now next time something wrong happens, I can understand where it came from. So I think that it was huge. And I think that it's something in every, like it's, it's a sport. You're in a competition, you're trying to be the highest level. So in, with that respect, you got to be able to accept that you're not going to, you know, you're human, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have weak spots and strong spots and you got to find your way through it. Um, and then the second part, uh, honesty throughout life, it definitely, that situation definitely played a lot of part into the same thing about being honest just through life and me as a person. Um, I was always, you know, when, especially when you get into sport and competition, it's like, there, I saw this, uh, this one Ted talk that it was about a basketball player who will sit there and like scream or it can relate to volleyball too. Like, Oh, he, like, I didn't touch it. I didn't touch it. But then you're at a high level. It's like right up on that jumbo screen. They're going to replay it and they're going to know if you touched it, but just naturally in sports, you just kind of like lie like that, just out of like nature, like competitiveness. Um, and there's this story actually of Peter Russell's dad who, uh, absolute legend Mr. Stu Russell he um was an incredible player at Penn State like All-American he's one of like the truest most honest people I've ever seen he was playing the Pottstown Rumble in one of the early years a really big grass tournament in Pennsylvania and uh they were in the championship and the ball served hit the line but typically in grass the line will pop and it didn't pop at all but it 100% hit it so it was called out and Stu was completely like no it hit the line, like take the ball. And the next point, the guy got a, a true ace and like won the game and he lost the championship. And all he ever gets respect, all he ever gets at that tournament is a ton of respect, not even because of that one play, just because of the way he carries himself as an honest person. So having like being able to get a viewpoint of things like that and same with my parents, they were the same way, super honest and very forward. So I just find that living life with honesty makes life a lot easier. Because when you're honest with yourself, when you're honest with others, it helps build a true relationship with yourself and with others. Because if like, if you're not honest, there's nothing else to build that on. You lie, you lie once or twice in a serious matter. Of course, there's always messing around or like a little white lie here and there. But if like I can't take you seriously, then or if you can't be honest with me, then how can we ever move forward from there? Mm-hmm. I've always thought of, not always, but recently not even recently, within the past few years, uh, <laughs> I've, I've thought of lying as somewhat of a fracturing of reality, where when someone lies to you, they're creating a new reality for you and the reality that they know of for them. And the more that you lie, the more complex these realities get. Yeah. Because you're building lies upon lies, like you said, and then 
it's a house of cards that once one crumbles, you can even go back and in a paranoid state, look at everything that someone's told you after you've known that they've lied to you, mm-hmm. that anything that they told you could have actually been a lie. Yeah. And I find that to be a very interesting psychological relationship with people where if, if you lie, if you're truthful with someone that you can take them at face value more often than not. And then you can actually seek out truth with them because if you're both being honest with each other, you can both come from a place of ignorance. And with that, you can actually come closer to some form of, call it objective truth, maybe. Yeah. And I find that very interesting, especially in a team setting, because sometimes things have to be glossed over for the sake of individuals over the team. And I think that being honest with your teammates is crucial and also understanding what type of honesty is beneficial for individual teammates, especially, I'm not sure if you guys had very many international players, but we had a few different guys from different countries that were honest in different ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had a a Polish guy that would just tell you that you're a piece of shit in the middle of a game (laughs) on the court. And it was really weird to deal with because the Danish culture is very similar to the Canadian culture I found and likely Mm -hmm. American and Australian culture I've heard. And so it's much more about brothership and camaraderie and these, yeah, this Polish guy would just tell you that you're a piece of shit. And I've heard that from guys in the Brazilian league as well, where they'll say, yeah, they'll just tell you that you have to be better and they'll scream at you. Yeah. How how do you balance that honesty in a team culture and cultivate that in a, in a culture and in those relationships? Yeah, I think I think kind of how you said there's there's two separate types of honesty and ways to approach things, especially in sports in a team sport like this. You have to have like your overall team and how you're going to approach that, and then like you said, the individuals. Um, and I think the overall team is a pretty simple thing to handle because everybody gets kind of told it, or it's like kind of known from the jump. It's like, hey, this is what our goal is. This is what's expected. Of you. Sorry. Yeah. No, you're good. You're good. Hey, can you take the dogs out? Are you going on an appointment? Okay. That's okay. Sorry about that. Please no, no worries. My, we have a dog here too. Luckily, my fiance has him like trapped in the room with her during her meeting. So hopefully he doesn't bark. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's just those two separate ways that you can approach it. And the team thing, like I said, I feel like it's too very structured. It's known by everybody. Like there's no way around that. But when you get down to the individual, there's so many different reactions that you can get. Like even when I was out in Denmark, there were guys that really – at the time, like when you're on the court, do not want to hear you say it. They don't want to hear you correct them. They don't want to hear how they can get it better. But then once the practice ends and they're cooled off and they're not even cooled off like mentally, I mean, like literally like not sweating and just in a chill environment, then they want to talk for like hours about how they can get better. And then there's other guys that respond by like getting on them and yelling at them. And I was always I, in, like I said, with my family and it just being so aggressive like even when I was in Denmark I stopped our practices a few times like on my own and like yelled at our whole team like out of anger and frustration that people weren't like working hard enough um and you know that's not always the best way to handle it that's kind of one of my I guess coping ways or something whenever I'm not happy with it is that a military family yelling works for me so why can't it work elsewhere but yeah there's just so many different approaches but I think that you need to be somebody who can understand people and understand a different mindset if you're really going to thrive and strive as a good teammate because you can be a really good player and really good for the team but you may not come off as a good teammate like you look at Michael Jordan and stuff like that where he was a total dick and everybody knew him as like the asshole but he got results and it's like when he was off the court he was helping you out but if you were on the court not doing your thing that's your problem um but 
So I wouldn't quite say that I take that approach to it where I'm just like an asshole to everybody, but I have my spurts where it comes out. But I think understanding the people around you is the best way to be able to have that balance. It is interesting because there's such a spectrum of people. And yeah, you have these Kobe Bryant's and Michael Jordan's where they'll be in practice calling people out and talking shit the whole time and their teammates mm-hmm. think that they hate them. And yeah. then there's a Canadian school, Trinity Western, and those guys just seem like they're brothers. They love the hell out of each other. And so I think that that's their form of leadership and camaraderie. Whereas yeah. they're, and they're super successful. And then, yeah. you have, and like I said, on the other side of the spectrum, maybe you have those individuals that push and pull a team. And it's not that one or the other is more successful, but it's just uh, tailoring the experience to each individual, like you said. Yeah, and I've I've seen some clips and stuff of that team playing, and they are insane. They're well, they they play like a professional team right off the jump. Mm-hmm. Like they're a very good program. What was it like getting your first contract and going to Denmark? Uh, well, I mean, obviously there is a, a certain point of like surreal to it because it's always been a dream of mine ever since. I always wanted to be a professional athlete. I didn't care how it came, and then once I realized the commitment to volleyball that I made. And I found out when I got to college that it exists. I was like, oh, well, this is sweet. Or actually end of high school because Peter Russell was going off to Germany when I was in my senior year summer going into freshman year. So that's when I found out. And I was like, well, sweet. This is what I want to do. I remember telling him, I was like, dude, I wish I could like go to Germany and just play. And now like this year I get to. So it's kind of like a cool little fun cycle. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, with uh, like the when I first got it, it was a certain point of being surreal and just like, man, I did it like all the works paid off. But then what you don't know is that's when the work really starts because you're now at a point where now it's your job when you were in college yeah you got some scholarship but they want you to be a good person get good grades when you're playing professional it's like you play and you win and you get paid or you play you suck and we're gonna send you home or like we don't want shit to do with you so it's a lot more harsh but um when I got it it was awesome because my first year out of college I was I really wanted to go I was ready I came home and I would just work some camps and train all day um and I had some issues with my first agent. So I fired him and I signed with him with now Yarad Tomasic. And he's been amazing. Um, and they came to me in, at that point, I had, to, I had to fire the one in September or October because now I'd missed the first signing the, mm-hmm. at beginning of season. But then I knew there was a loop back in December when some guys get hurt or they get fired or something and openings occur. So I signed with this new agent for that. And they came to me with an offer in Croatia, which I was super excited about. Um, And the day that I went, like they were ready to sign the papers, ready to look into flights. And I got MRI results that I herniated a disc in my back and tore a muscle in my back. Um, So when talking to the doctor, I had to rehab for like six, seven months. I mean, I could still work out and play a little bit, but I was very hindered when I played and I had a lot of pain. So he's like, you need to stop playing, do lifting and do this rehab. So I had to deny that contract and take the year off rehabbing. And that was, that was pretty brutal. Cause at that point I was like, I got bills to pay. Like I got to get a real job now. Um, and you know, it was just disheartening. Like I had finally reached my goal and then my body didn't allow me to like actually complete it. Um, and my fiance was in- incredible about it. I mean, she's lived with a lot of crap with me and the whole pro stuff, leaving for nine, 10 months, coming home for nine, 10 months, taking a year to rehab, always bitching to her because I'm pissed that my back sucks. 
and blaming my parents for my bad back for no reason. Um, so, so Denmark in that first contract had a lot of like special meaning to it because of everything that I had gone through to just finally get one. And then after I come back and I feel good, I'm fully rehabbed, COVID hit. Uh, I was like, great. And even my agent was like, there's going to be a lot less contracts. A lot of teams aren't bringing in internationals. A lot of teams don't have the money now. And I was like, hey, dude, this is never going to happen. And then Denmark called me in like end of July or no, in August, like first week of August or something like that. And after the contract was finalized on like a Thursday and I flew out that Tuesday. So I had like five days to get my whole life packed up and leave. But it was it was definitely something special. It was a very, very crazy feeling. What was the emotional feeling of not being able to go and play after herniating your disc? That was probably one of the most like, I don't want to say devastating because that may be a little bit dramatic, but that was probably one of the hardest emotional things to cope with and mentally wise, like coming from a mentality standpoint. Like I said, I had gone through all this work. I'd had a pretty good senior season at Charleston. Um, and, you know, I was feeling I was feeling good. I was ready. And then to have all of that like removed and all I all I wanted, like, obviously, I'm doing more now, but all I ever wanted was I was like, just give me one year, one contract to play professional and I'll be happy. Um, obviously that's a waterfall effect where you always want to go for more, but, um, so getting that stripped away strictly due to something that I didn't get rehabbed properly, or I didn't treat it right was super mentally tough. And then I was going working a nine to five in accounting where I was miserable. I'm not a desk guy at all. I can never go back to a desk. Like I'm, I used to call my fiance at like lunch. I'd be like, I hope, you know, whenever I get a contract and like, I, I quit this job, I was like, this is the last time I was like, I'm done. I was like, there's no other way. I was like, I have to get a contract this upcoming year or I'm going to lose it. I was like, there's no doubt. And she was just like, okay, like, sounds good. Like I'm ready. Let's do it. So I just going through that year was really tough mentally, but all the working out and rehabbing kind of kept me right because I was super motivated at that point. But it was just, it was a huge blow for sure. But for the better, I think like it tested me mentally. It showed me kind of things that I would have liked to see about myself and I was able to see them. So it was, it was a terrible like time, but it was worth it. What do you think the impact is of that over time? I have been trying to think more about the difference between suffering and mm -hmm. sacrifice. And sacrifice comes from two root Latin words, and the meaning of them are one being holy and one to make. So sacrifice is to make holy. Mm -hmm. And I think that the idea of that is to supersede oneself as holy is something that's beyond oneself or a little bit higher in terms of mm -hmm. if we were to take the metaphysical plane of heaven and hell and then earth is in the middle, I think holy yeah. would be that heaven. So I think that's something that we're consistently reaching for is something that we're making holy through sacrifice. I think that might be the connection. But also suffering seems to be just pain for the sake of pain. And yeah. you could definitely make the David Goggins argument of anytime that you're in pain or suffering, it increases your capacity in the future to suffer. So that's mm -hmm. something that you want to do as well. And yeah, uh, I'm also a big David Goggins fan. I think the man's an absolute animal and it's like unhealthy the way that he operates. But at the same time, it's like the most vicious thing ever and nobody will ever mentally screw with him. So I love it. I love the kind of way that he operates. But yeah, I kind of, I don't know, with that, I felt like there was kind of a mix of both. There was a little bit of sacrifice and definitely a whole lot of suffering. But I'd say most of the, for me, when it came down to it during that time period, that was really mentally difficult for me. It was like, 
there is a lot more like suffering was a more day-to-day kind of thing where every day I was suffering through this nine to five. And then I was suffering when I was at my lifts because I couldn't do what I wanted to do because of my back. And then the rehab would make me feel good. But then at the end of it, I'm like, I can't believe I just went and did cat camels and held a band for 45 minutes. And this is what I've come to now. I'm like, this is ridiculous. So I'd say in like the, um, in the micro, there is a lot of suffering. But if I look over the whole six months in the macro, there's definitely a lot of sacrifice. And again, I've mentioned it a lot, but my fiance, I mean, she went through a ton of sacrifice for me to do this because I was waking up at four in the morning going and playing in the mornings whenever my rehab was close to finished, but I was still working this nine to five. So I'd go and I'd play for two and a half hours in the morning, whoever I could get to come out to the gym with me or me by myself. Um, I'd come home, shower, work nine to five. And when I got off at five and most of the time six, I would go and I, COVID was in the midst. So I didn't have a weight room, but I had some free weights and other things. So I would go and do like an hour and a half workout, like upstairs. And by then it's already eight o'clock. She made dinner and I'm like, well, now I got to eat and go to bed because I got to be up at four. So there is just a lot, a lot of things to go through. And I think that's where a lot of the sacrifice came was the time, uh, the kind of mental state of going through it was even a sacrifice in itself. Like, honestly, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but it was a sacrifice of a lot of happiness too. Like a lot of the things that I really enjoyed doing, I couldn't do anymore because I was sacrificing it to be able to get to where I am. Um, so that was, that was a weird balance. But like I said, in the micro, a lot of suffering in the macro, a lot of sacrifice. It's interesting what sacrifices, it seems to be the prolongment of some kind of suffering and desire to say no to momentary pleasure for long-term gain yep exactly that's and that's what i think a lot of people that don't make it to that higher level or especially in volleyball where it's you know it's not easy don't get me wrong but like there's a lot of opportunity to find yourself overseas or in like a, a league um again not even close to easy but there's a lot of those people that like you said you know they would they get that opportunity where it's like, well, I have three hours of a gym open tonight that I could go and like get reps and play a little bit. But my buddy wants me to like come to his house and like drink an 18 pack. And it's like 90% of the time they're going to take that because that sounds way better than going to like a hot ass gym and sweating. But the people that end up. All right. Yeah. My bad. I don't know what was going on. No, you're good. Like 60% when we started and then it died at like 16. And I, I don't know, this thing's like six years old and it's just been, a pain in the ass but that sounds right, like my old iphone yeah yeah i've had that issue too me and technology do not get along <laughs> ever here we're talking a little bit about the the would-be's and the pros and the difference between those people in terms of mindset yeah yeah so like like we were saying it's just uh kind of that difference between you going in and doing the extra work versus you not and then you also it flashes back to that being able you being able to point out faults like there's a lot of guys that I know that grind and work super hard work out all the time but then they get in the gym and they want to practice their five foot bounce ball up to the ceiling and they'll hit a thousand of those instead of learning how to hit a cut shot or a deep corner and then when they get into the game they just get shit housed 15 times in a row because all the training they've been doing has been for hitting lines mm -hmm. so it's like there's a difference in that too but i'd say as long as you can get them to turn that mentality to finding their faults and improving on it they can make their way but i think the people that just will always pick to go out and, and do something fun over going and training that it's never going to happen for them. Just, just because that's like, if you don't, it's the same thing with the class. Like if you don't do your homework, if you don't put in the work, you're not going to get a good grade. 
And if you don't ever do that, you're never going to make any progress. I want you to have the opportunity to gas your fiance up a little bit. What's it like to have someone as supportive as she is? And where did you guys meet? And how did that relationship develop? Oh, well, I appreciate that. And she will too. I told her she was doing this and she watches some of your stuff too. So she'll be excited. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so we met, we met in college or so, well, we were the same year freshmen, but it was like, we would, we were always at the same parties, but I don't think I even had one conversation with her or vice versa. Um, and then sophomore year, we like ran into each other up front and just the men's and women's volleyball team at that time were pretty close. So like, if I just saw any women's volleyball player, I would feel comfortable talking to them, even if I had never spoken to them before. So we fired off and talked for like 45 minutes one morning out in like this random circle standing there, like both of us trying to go somewhere. And then after that, we kind of realized, recognized, realized that each other existed. And then from there on out, we, we started dating and have been together since and now get married next July. So, um, no, she's been, she's been amazing. She's probably been, she's the big reason why that struggle year of being home and rehabbing was that I was able to stay like committed and get through it. Cause like I said, she dealt with all the shit that I was dealing with um, on top of her working her own job, making a lot of the meals because I was gone a lot training or busy where I couldn't, you know, I can't like get a workout in and cook like spaghetti. So um, just kind of having her there to do all that. And when we, even when we first started dating, I was like, look, like there's really no other option here. Like if we're going to be a thing, like I'm, I'm doing this, like I'm good. I'm going to find my way to go play professional. I'll be in Europe. Like there's no way that I'm sacrificing that for anything. And she was like, yeah, of course, like let's do it. And then even this year now we're planning a wedding and I'm like, Hey, we're going to Germany. Is that cool? She was like, yeah, of course. Like, so she's just a very sturdy and very like like very much so a rock in our relationship for sure. Cause she keeps us very stable while I spray us array in every meaning of the sense. And she just kind of like reels it all in and keeps it under control. So she deserves a lot of the credit for what I've been able to do like on the court. <laughs> right. There has to be some order to the chaos. Exactly. And she's that for sure. How do you think that you reciprocate the support for her? I don't want to overstep or anything, but I think, no, no, no. I think relationships are very interesting. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're very open about our relationship. Like a lot of people just like know random stuff about our relationship. I don't know why. Um, probably because we're very open and we both talk a lot. Um, but, uh, oh, for me personally, so like she's really big into like the love languages kind of thing and knowing her love language. I've never really been into that. Like the the signs and all the other stuff has never been my speed. Mm -hmm. Um but she like, so when her, she's told me what hers are and like what she likes, like acts of kindness or whatever this is. So, you know, like whenever I could, I would try to like bring home flowers or pick her up a coffee or do something like that. I make sure to like verbally reinforce a lot, like how much I appreciate her help and all she's doing. And like the other window is like, whenever we talk to friends or like when I'm talking to you right now and like, all I do is talk about like how awesome she's been. So things like that, I really try to reciprocate with and, you know, it's not, we're like, whenever it comes down to birthdays and stuff, she likes to make it a big deal. So we always kind of go all out, but we're not very big, like gift or not. She's a huge gift giver, but we're not like people that were like, Oh, you like, we have to spend like two grand on Christmas for each other. It's like more with us. It's kind of like the way that we interact with each other. And especially with the time spent apart when I was in Denmark, just the ability for her to come out for Christmas and me be able to like sit down and have breakfast with her was like the nicest thing ever. And whenever we do things together, such as like have 
dinner just the two of us or something we're very like engaged with each other and we make it a point to because of how much time we spent apart because she also did her master's in London where she was gone for a whole year and I was back home playing in the states so we had a lot of time apart during our relationship um, so we always just make it a very big point to be very present with each other whenever we are with each other so those have kind of been some of the ways that I've reciprocated and some of the ways that we were able to like maintain a healthy relationship during our times apart. How do you maintain a long distance relationship? Um, it's definitely not easy. Uh, but I think most importantly is that it takes two people who are willing and knowing to do it. So it takes, it takes a lot to be able to be emotionally strong and emotionally loyal, emotionally, physically, however you want to write up loyal is hundred percent. Obviously that's talked about all the time, but we've just always been super committed to each other, super loyal in that sense. And it's kind of a big creed between the two of us before, like we started dating, even our own personal creed was always that like cheating and not being loyal. is a huge problem for us, like a huge deal breaker. I've never, never cheated on anybody. I never will. And neither is she. And like, it's just kind of a big, which also made it easy because we were on the same kind of wavelength. Like we were both very mentally the same. Um, so it's just kind of having two people that are capable and willing to do it. Cause a lot of times people will try to do it. And then one gets that taste of like freedom or being by themselves. And it's not even that they would go out and cheat, but it's that they now don't want to stay up till three in the morning to answer a FaceTime, or they don't want to wake up at four or five in the morning to like watch a game or something like that. So I think that both of us just having that mentality and being really invested in each other is what made it easy. Because I mean, even when I was over there, we weren't able to talk very often. We would always get at least one FaceTime a day, but sometimes it was for two minutes in between our meeting and then we would just message. But as I said, I'm shit with technology. So me responding to a text message, like you're, you're lucky that, that we did this so quick to the time you messaged me. Cause there is a whole nother like realm where this turns out that I read that text like six months from now. And then <laughs> so well, not, not that, that you're you. lucky, but. The I am. I'm very lucky work because I am terrible with my phone. My mom yells at me all the time because I don't even respond to my own mother, which is not great. But yeah. Yeah. Sometimes my grandma will send me six texts a day and it's tough to respond to every single one of them. Yep. I get those too. And then I get the phone call and I get berated. And What do you think is the benefit of long-term goals? You mentioned something a little bit earlier about playing pro and how it was a cascading waterfall of effects where you play one year of pro and then you play the next year. And yeah. there's this Zen Buddhist concept of nothing special where the things that you have achieved or achieve in the moment are special momentarily. And as you pass them, they become the past and they become less special over time. So I'm sure for a university athlete in your final year, you didn't feel that that was something that was particularly special. You didn't wake up every day and think, wow, thank my lucky stars that I'm a university athlete. But yeah. I'm sure that when you were 14 or 15, it would have been world shattering in the greatest way possible to hear that you'd played division one volleyball. So yeah. what do you think the impacts of that philosophy are over time on people? And then how do you set goals looking into the future, knowing that over time they won't be special? Yeah, no, and that's a, that's a very good point. That's very true. I can't remember what I, it was the Buddhist, but I don't remember exactly what what was the terminology for it. What you call it? Zen? Zen Buddhism. It's, uh, Zen. Shinru Suzuki was the author of this book. Zen I think Mind, I, beginner's mind. I think Dustin actually talked about it a little bit when we were on with him. But either way, yeah, I agree. I agree with that completely because you're very right. When I was in high school, if I would have 
like been able to watch my life in a day when I was a senior in college, I would have been like, dude, this is so cool. And my senior year in college, I was like, man, I can't wait to get the hell out of here. Like try to get me to Europe. I don't even care if it's not Europe. Just let me go home. Like, and that, that is a very big real realistic thing that occurs. And I feel like a lot of people get so caught up in it, but I think that a big, the like, crutch to that whole thing and what holds that whole ideal together that like where I'm at is not far enough is other people's opinions I think that's what causes a lot of people nowadays especially in sports because it's like when I was 15 that was the biggest thing that I could have done is to make it to college and play division one and then it's like why is that not successful now at that point well it's because whenever you're out there and you're in the world and there's so other many other people especially with social media nowadays everybody's watching everything you do so it's like, okay, well, now I got to this point, but now nobody's really impressed by it. So let me like take that next step. So um, when it comes to sort of setting long-term goals, I think the set of a long-term goal is easy. People always have their dream and you feel like you have a lot of time to get it done. But then people, again, like we talked about the micro and the macro of like, this isn't sacrifice. Well, it's still sacrifice, but the micro and the macro, it's like, yeah, but that a hundred and whatever days from now when you have to be at that goal, if you don't do the one hour of work like today, then you're setting yourself back and now making this a short-term goal that's really hard to reach. So I think the setting of a long-term goal is very simple and easy. Executing it is obviously difficult. I mean, you're in the same boat. You were playing overseas. You know how it is to aim for something or to even university, whatever, to be able to shoot for a goal and reach such a high level. It takes a ton of work. Um, and whenever you get to... Uh, the point of working towards that goal and trying to figure out your mindset and how to get it done. It's just not something that is really, and there's no clean cut way to do it. And every way that people do it is completely different. Like the way that I got overseas is probably way different than the way you did or the way different than Dustin did or anybody else. So it's, it's just kind of a hard battle if it's not something you truly want but the the whole zen thing about when you get there it's never enough which is very true like because once you get there it's not surreal anymore it's not well surreal is not the right term but it's not this like big dream anymore it's like okay well now I'm here it's like when I got to Denmark I was like dude I can't wait this is gonna be sick I'm going to Europe and then I get there and like I realized there's no AC in any part of like Denmark like gas is astronomical tax is wild I'm like this is not the dream I saw when I was playing in Europe but of course it still was because like I was getting paid to go to a gym and play a sport every day so I loved it but it's like whenever you get the realities of that because not at no like dream thing that occurs is to actually that occurs in real life will actually have that dream like epicenter like people think it does um so I think that being able to ignore the opinions of others is what helps you determine when and where is good enough for you because too many people get too much influence and even even I had it when I was in um, college or even in Denmark like I love Denmark it was a competitive league the players in it were really good so it was a fun competition but in my head I was like well I want to try to get to like the next big league and then it's like well when is it enough when do you cut it off so I've always made it a very big purpose that if you're not somebody who I'm like influenced by on the daily in terms of a personal relationship like my fiance or my parents like then your opinion of what I've accomplished means absolutely nothing and when I've been working a lot of camps this summer um just because I have nothing to do other than train and stuff so make a little extra money for the wedding um and when you get in a gym with an eight-year-old dude that hears that you're a professional volleyball player it either is like the world to them and you're the coolest thing ever or like they will viciously berate you and like make you feel like you're nothing 
like and i'm like you know this is kind of like exactly what i'm looking at is these two different parallels and i'm like and guess what that eight-year-old that roasted me for like being too short or being like ugly and that there's no way you could be a pro i'm like you know <laughs> you're probably right but like <laughs> dude like it's just like why why would it and not the eight-year-old because obviously that's just an eight-year-old but in real life you get people from your high school that you you subconsciously think are just judging your whole life people don't care about other people like that much i don't think people realize like they do care like in terms of how you're doing and that you're well off but like i scroll through instagram all the time and like i love to see when people are doing well i always comment i always do something i always try to hype them up on my story or something but at the end of the day it's like if i didn't see that post i'd have no idea what's going on or like anything like that. So I think the, the ability to set aside people's opinions is what's gonna help you set a long-term goal and also know when it's time to be done. I think that your comment about other people not thinking about you as much as you think they do is <laughs> so true. And I think that that's a product of human psychology is loss aversion. I think that ties into the idea of nothing special as well. It's a lot worse to lose something than it is to gain something for people. And maybe that's part of it on the social media aspect as well is looking at people. I'm far more happy for those that are doing great than I am vindictive for people that I think are doing great and undeserving of it. Oh yeah. Like for the most part, I just don't really care about what people are doing, even if it's people that I don't necessarily like or agree with. Yeah. And I think that people, especially when you're young, get caught up a lot in that. I think that a part of egocentrism might be a part of that and kind for of sure. blossoming into someone who has a appropriate friend group that can encourage them, but finding yeah. that friend group is really tough. But in the meantime, it's so difficult because everyone that you see, you see as a potential threat yeah. until you realize yeah. that they're not actually. And they think about you almost as much as you probably think about them. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the time, or maybe if it's someone that you think really hates you, they are probably thinking about you as much as the next person that thinks that you hate them that you haven't yeah. thought about in four years. No, and I couldn't agree more. And that's ex and a lot of times, like a lot of people have these subconscious thoughts, like this person absolutely hates me. And in reality, that person hasn't thought like even a lick about you. Like, as, <laughs> it's like, you think that they hate you and they just like crossed paths with you once and like thought you were like, just another guy, like, okay, and they don't really care, but you let it like, shape everything that occurs around you because you're so concerned. And especially like even like the announcements of like, when people commit and stuff like that, like, awesome great i love it because you deserve like you earn that title like share it but the effect that it has on the other people that are looking at it like people get all this shame and feel bad and everything i'm like dude it's it's so pointless and the whole like uh disparity between division one and division three in the u.s and like everybody wants to go d1 you got to be signed d1 like that's the that's the kingpin like i there's this d3 guy who played at carthage uh you've probably heard of him will craft he was yeah, in you guys just did a podcast with him, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. we didn't do an episode with him. No, we haven't done an episode with him yet, but we've, he's been a part of like four to four. We gave him one of our shirts or whatever, but he was this D3 guy out of Carthage. Like I had never heard of the name Carthage in my life. And he was just playing at Lunenburg in Bundesliga and is like an insane player. I'm like, if you follow the stereotype that like division one's the best and division three is the worst, you're stupid. Like, yes, there is a certain accolade that comes with it. Division one can get a lot more people, like a lot easier to get higher recruits. So yeah, overall, the general play is better in division one just because it's first division. 
That's how it's always going to be. But people like get so bummed out if they get a D3 offer and like don't even want to go. I'm like, dude, half there's like a handful of people in D3 that'll probably walk out and like smoke any Division One player if they played them. Mm-hmm. It's like all this like mental like battle that people have to have about like society's view on them that they like almost cloud completely what they want to do. What is your general life mantra or what's some advice that you've received that resonates very well with you? Uh, one thing that I've really committed to, uh, and this is kind of, I guess what I would say is my mantra. I actually have it on this bracelet here. It's, I just live by like the little phrase, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I committed to for a while. When I was a freshman in high school, um, we had this friend that we were close, close with. He was like an older brother figured us. He was like multiple years older. His dad and my uncle were like best friends. So he was always over at the house with us during like family cookouts and stuff. So he was just kind of a family friend that we looked up to a lot. Um, When he was, he had had a bit of an odd upbringing, just like a very odd like household. He really wasn't living with his parents. His parents didn't have much of any of a relationship. And it was just this whole mess, just, you know, a rough upbringing in general. Um, So he was on his own for a lot from when he was like 16. Not that he had to be, but he chose to be just kind of wrong path. And he got into all kinds of like heavy drugs and was not in a healthy form. And then him and his dad kind of rekindled. And uh, he had a really good relationship with his dad, was completely sober, was like going to the gym, just trying to get everything like back in order. Um, And he was a very laid back guy. And he used to say it all the time. He would say, it's all good. And that was just kind of what he lived by was like, like, because every time you get into a stressful situation or you overthink something or like financially you're worried, it's like, like literally it's all good. Like there's, you're you're fine. Like things are going to work their way out. Like the only thing that's stressing about it um, the only thing that's stressing about it is going to do is make it 10 times worse for you down the road. Cause if you just stay calm, relax and find your way through it, it's all good. So he kind of lived by that. And, um, when he was 23 and he was like cleaned up sober, like live, like him and his dad had a great relationship. They were going to the gym together in the morning and like doing these workouts one morning at it. He, uh, when they were lifting, he had a brain aneurysm completely out of nowhere and passed away. So we went, I went to his funeral and uh, that was one of the things that they had mentioned that he would always say, it's all good. And that he was just a very laid back person who never wanted to put stress on others and never wanted to like over, like overdo things in terms of like, cause there's always those people who are so wound up that it's just like, you know, he was a very like, guys, everybody relax. It's all good. Like the mellow, mellow everybody out. Um, and I don't know why, but at, at the funeral, it really stuck with me. And I went straight from there to a baseball practice and, um, I just like couldn't stop thinking about it. So I really got like committed into it. And then I told my fiance about it. And it was just like something I would always say, like when she would come home, like crying because like she twisted her ankle and she can't play or something bad happened in her family. I would just always like quietly hug her and just be like, it's all good. And just kind of walk through that. So that's something that I've really adopted and that I've committed to. Um, And I guess I would state it's kind of like my mantra. (laughs) what do you think the long-term impact of taking life too seriously is for people? Cause I think that the, those kind of tie into the same vein a little bit where yeah. the worst thing in life that could happen is that you could die. That's, that's yeah. what my friend and I always used to say to each other, anything, things started to turn a little bit awry or we had a situation that wasn't ideal. We'd kind of look at each other and say, well, we're not dead yet. So yeah, yeah. So we're good. on the right, but let's move forward. 
Yeah, I like that a lot, though, because it's so true. It's like, it, you know, everything could be going to shit and it could be in shambles. You get kicked out of your house, your car gets towed, like everything's going down. It's like, well, guess what? You still had a meal today, so you're still at least full. Like there's always some type of positive to take away. So that's kind of how I approach it. But like, I agree. And I think that the overstress of that, because I have friends that are like that, that are just so wound up and so tight. Like, I mean, obviously, like, just being at that high of a gear for that long could literally result in death quite literally. Like you could get a heart attack from being that overstressed. And also I think the other thing that comes with it is that, like when you're that wound up and there's a balance, cause there's also being way too mellow where you get yourself into way too much trouble because you don't do anything and you haven't gotten your life together. Like you haven't, I mean, not that I in any way have mine together yet, but I think I have a good understanding of where I should be and what I need to do. Um, so there's the two, the two, uh, like the two ends of the spectrum. Um, I think both are, are aggressively bad to be on. You want to find that balance because if you're so wound up, it can even get to a point where by the time you're 30, you have the build of a, a 60 year old man because you put your body through so much of overthinking and overstressing that your bones aren't holding up straight. Like you go through injuries all the time. You're like, and I mean, this is also, can occur just randomly, but hair loss, you could literally force yourself through too much stress into being hair loss and stuff like that. And then you're 40 years old and you have a, a kid that's, or you're 35 and you have a kid that's six, seven years old and you can't go out in your backyard and play basketball with them because you overworked yourself too much in terms of the stresses and everything that occurs. And like I said, also the same other side is that you're just so mellow that you really don't care about anything. Ooh. Ooh. I almost just had a wild hamstring cramp. Like it fully started. Oh my Man, God. Man, I thought you were going to tell me that your back broke or something. That look on your face scared me. No, 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 no. That was, I felt like the wave from bottom of my ass cheek up to the bottom of my knee. Like I'm terrified to move my leg right now, but it's not happening. So we're good. I just literally not going to remove my right leg. Sorry. Drink some water, <laughs> eat a banana, all that fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think that there's a, fun relationship in motivation where dopamine is the neurochemical that motivates or mm -hmm. results in motivation and action. And then cortisol is the neurochemical that results in stress. Mm -hmm. And there's something that pushes and pulls us there. So you're right. If someone's way too relaxed about everything, then they don't have enough cortisol and that results in them not doing anything because there's no push. Yeah. And then maybe people that are far too strung up on things, have an influx of cortisol to dopamine ratio. So they actually don't have enough dopamine active to motivate them. And the cortisol takes over and stresses them out. And there's this paralysis by analysis where there's too much to do. So you don't do anything at all. And you just kind of sit there and lay back in your little mind dungeon. Yeah. So <laughs> I, think that, I think that it's interesting that you mentioned that. And there, there has to be some way for people to find a way to motivate themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge negative visualizer. And I'm pretty neurotic by nature, even though I'm also super optimistic about things. Uh -huh. So any, anytime that anything happens, I'm normally thinking about the worst case scenario and what yeah. could be the worst case every now and then I'll sleep on the floor because I yeah. have to remind myself that I've slept on the floor before and <laughs> I need to be prepared to sleep on the floor again. So I think that there's this relationship where if you're too relaxed, maybe you need to think about things that push you and make you anxious. And then if you're too anxious, you need to focus more on those things you need to relax. And it's this kind of this Jungian idea of wherever you're at on any given spectrum, you have to find a way to bridge the gap to the other side of the spectrum 
or take yeah. on the frame of mind of someone on the other side of the spectrum so that you can develop a relationship in between those things that is beneficial for you. And I would even relate it to volleyball or any other, other athletics where it's that honesty with yourself about what you're good and bad at mm-hmm. and moving towards the thing that you're bad at while also acknowledging the thing that you're good at and using that to motivate you forward. Yeah. And I agree completely. And I like kind of what you mentioned just about the over, when we were talking about the overuse and underuse, like when you get like, when you're working crazy or like, if you've never worked hard and you've never like, there's cause like when with us in volleyball, we always wanted to work really hard to where we were good at that with your podcast and what you got going now, me and you are kind of going through the same thing ironically, which is sweet because now there's somebody else I know who's doing it as well. Like, when I started my podcast, I got like crazy into it, like, like obsessive with it, where I was like, man, like, it was like a whole refreshing, because I've always been motivated for volleyball, but that's been 12 years now, you know, it's a little bit, a little more dry than what it was when I first was motivated to get into it. Um, and now with the podcast thing, like was a fresh take, like it was freshly motivating. I was like, man, this is sick. And just kind of went after it. And that's the thing. So it's like, if I had never had that taste of it with with volleyball or with baseball or with like getting my degree or um, like doing things to make my relationship good with my fiance or with my parents. Like if I had never had something to get me motivated at the start, you would never like really strive to keep doing things that motivate you. Like you were saying, like you just won't work or you won't do anything because of that imbalance and you don't want to do anything. So it's like, you have to at least do some sort of work or something because that just keeps building it up and it gets you excited about uh, about other things so yeah right the the first swath of the scythe is always the most difficult yeah exactly yeah what got you into podcasting because you you run four to four the volleyball related podcast and yes yes that with uh, a few of your friends yeah just tell me about what what got you into that why you started that in that particular niche and yeah what that's been like for you um so for me, when it kind of started, I kind of had thoughts about it uh, before like COVID or anything like that hit. I had already had thoughts about it um, just because me and uh, Matt Calloway, which is one of the guys that I do it with, he was a middle of Penn State. He played pro over in Estonia and Romania. Really good player, really good guy and a really good kind of mind to just talk to. And um, when Fortnite had its big wild kick up and everybody was playing it, um, I played with him a bunch and we used to play like an obscene amount. And the whole time we were on, we would just talk about like anything and everything, like volleyball, like anything that was happening within the US, within other countries, like everything, literally everything we would speak about. And we would always joke that we should just like make a podcast out of it and just like shoot the shit. Um, But then when COVID hit and everybody got really removed from volleyball, we were like, dude, we always should have wanted to do one about volleyball because it's obviously what we know best. It's what we've committed everything to. Um, So... I kind of ran the idea by him and he was like, yeah, I would a hundred percent be down. And I've had the same talks with Peter Russell because Peter, Peter grow, he grew up like 10 minutes from where I grew grew up. So we, um, when we had finally crossed paths, we were like very close from the jump and we hang out all the time. So we used to talk about it too. So I was like, it got to a point where I was just like, I, let's just do it then. I was like, you know, if, if you're not going to like, I'm never going to know a ton about podcasting, seeing as I've never had done a podcast and I'm terrible with electronics. I was like, so our best bet is like, get what we need, 
record and just get going and we're going to figure it out as we go so before i left for denmark last year i like ordered these microphone this microphone peter got one too and then we were like all right and then we just started going so we had always had a really good conversation and been really we were the three of us were always really close so we were like dude we're a fun like laid back kind of group like we have some good questions we know our shit like might as well just fire one up mm -hmm. what do you think the benefits have been for you not only within the volleyball community but also personally uh personally i mean because it was during that time of COVID, and especially take COVID out of it because uh, different spots like you, you know when you got to Denmark it was probably like like COVID didn't exist when I first got there like yeah. once I got off the plane I never wore a mask again but then December it was in lockdown and the U.S. was super open so it was super backwards but um, the benefit also of it that was really big for me since we I think we did our first episode in end of September last year I was still fresh over to Europe in my first season and um, but throughout the whole time, it's like I knew once a week I was going to be able to get on and talk to like two of my very best friends and a total other random person about volleyball in a very like and plus they're from uh, the U.S. So like that kind of culture, just to be able to talk to them for two hours in like an American culture setting or like Canadian North American setting mm -hmm. was just super nice. So like mentally that helped a lot when I was over there to be able to have this where I knew once a week I was going to be able to hop on with these two guys and we'd be able to like shoot the shit and kind of enjoy it. And then also bring in other minds of volleyball and discuss stuff. It was just, it was very cool and very beneficial in many ways. And like we talked about, you know, when you're somebody who's motivated and I think any athlete at the college level is pretty much very motivated. Like I was, I was getting kind of bored, you know, I needed something else to do. So I was like, dude, a podcast would be a crazy challenge. Um, so a lot of benefits socially from that and also like the people you get to connect with like there's so many people that as a human you naturally like prejudge people I think it's inevitable anybody who says they don't they're like I never judge a book by its cover it's like no that, that's bullshit like if you walk by and you see a guy like throw a drink at a wall you think he's an asshole that's just like the way your head works that's the way like it operates um so like getting to see some of these people who I've never known personally, and then I get to sit down and have a conversation with them. It's like the coolest thing ever because it completely changes the morph. Not always. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that were exactly, exactly how I expected them. And it was awesome that they were that way. And then there's others that I was like, you know, I really don't know how to get a read on this person or like what this is going to be like. And then they like blow my mind and they're awesome and incredible. Like the way that they develop and like think about things would just like shock the shit out of me. How has that changed your perspective on people? Because I've had a few of those similar experiences where I came in with a preconceived notion on what a yeah. person was, who they were, what their beliefs were. And by structuring them myself, I found that I was doing a misservice to both myself and that person by prejudging. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I did the same thing. And like, I've, I've always been a very open person. Like I will, I will straight up tell people like if I like them or if I don't, and it's not often I don't like people. Like I'm a very, like, I enjoy like so many different like minds and being able to talk to different people. So, but, um, I've just always been very forward and very like open about like stuff. So like whenever having that kind of change was like, man, it may really makes me like think I'm like, I really got to like, be even more open and like relaxed with like, cause like there, you could catch one person on a bad day and they could literally be an angel and be amazing, but they had one bad day and that's all you saw. 
So you think this or this about them. But I also think that it's super healthy to kind of have those preconceived notions because it shows that you're still like a valid person in society who's trying to make a judgment about somebody. Now, just straight up judging somebody isn't great. And I think that the people who are like, they did something bad to me the first time I met them. I never want to like, I, I don't want to give them the time of day. It's like that, see that I think is stupid. I think it's normal to have a preconceived notion. I think it's almost healthy because you're, you're making an analysis of somebody. You're trying to understand them. You're trying to put in effort to know who they are or understand something about them. And then whenever you, like I said, when you make that first assumption, you're too rock solid. That's when you kill yourself. I think that you need to, if you have that preconceived notion to then take time to be able to see if it's accurate or not or to get like more in depth with it. Yeah. I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about prejudice and mm -hmm. my idea was that prejudice is inherent and we can't get rid of it at all. And prejudice is in that exact idea of judging someone before you actually meet them. And the example yeah. that I gave of a appropriate prejudice was when I was growing up, I think I was uh, getting to about 16 to 18 in that range where at night I would just go for a walk on my own at night mm -hmm. and I loved walking around at night. It was yeah. very quiet and that was just what I needed. And I realized over time as I got older and therefore larger was that girls would cross the street and then cross back after they'd passed me. Yeah. And I thought, well, that, that kind of sucked. I actually stopped walking at night because I felt so bad that I was scaring people. But I thought, well, that's an, that's an appropriate prejudice. Because yeah. Women on average tend to be slightly more neurotic than men. And I think that that's a part of it is that men are safer in general from other people just because of our, our physical stature so i thought that, that was an appropriate prejudice and i think that you're right is that we literally need to have prejudice for people because if we didn't we wouldn't be able to operate efficiently enough to actually survive in the world yeah exactly and i that that is a very good example because it's very accurate and it the girl probably means no harm by it and if she were to see you it would be mm -hmm. totally normal or whatever but it's just out of safety it's the same thing like if you to a really simple term, and this is much of an extreme, but if you had had no experience in the real world and you did not make any type of prejudice or any type of an assumption, and you had seen a gun shot off and you see a guy with a gun pointed at you, it's a pretty safe bet to say he's probably gonna shoot you. Let me get the yeah. hell out of the way. Like that guy's dangerous, that is a bad man, let me move. It's like, like I said, the most extreme form, but if you have none of that, like you're now not walking anymore. So like, like you said, but yeah, again, there's also that balance that comes in every single time you do anything where it's like you want to you need that prejudice but you need to be able to one change from it if it's appropriate and two not over prejudice something I like so many people get so locked in on that prejudice or whatever um that it's not an appropriate prejudice or not like good or healthy for society or anybody involved mm -hmm. i think the prejudice could has the potential consequence of turning ideological very quickly where it's something yeah. that is all encompassing of whatever group or issue that you're looking at and i even experienced it the other day i was in the i was in the muay thai gym and this guy came in and he had a gun in a holster and i'm a canadian i grew up in canada I've, I've i've gone hunting like we we had guns and stuff but seeing someone in a closed vicinity with a firearm uh -huh. an exposed firearm on his holster and i have a prejudice of firearms because i've been exposed to u.s media regardless yeah. of what the statistics say about shootings and all of this yeah, other stuff yeah, yeah. it's just this immediate reaction that i had where i was i felt myself get anxious and i was like looking for exits trying to figure out what i yeah, was going to yeah, do yeah. next and it was it was 
interesting because this guy just had this huge smile on his face. And anytime our instructor was talking, he was nodding, he had his arms crossed, and he was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it was just this prejudice that, as you said, you have to be relatively fluid with your prejudice to be as effective as a prejudice can be because you need to start somewhere and then be able to move fluidly throughout that opinion. Yeah, and, ex and see, that's a very appropriate one. Like, you were from Canada where it's not common to carry it. You had seen the news postings about all the stuff going on in the U.S., and now you're in the U.S. and you see a guy walk in with a gun. Like, two and two equals four. So in your, yeah. your anxious mind, it's like, okay, well, this guy's about to shoot up everybody. Like, common sense. Um, and like I said, I was in a military family, so I've had guns around our household my whole life. And I'm like, I mean, I'm not necessarily comfortable if some stranger walks in with a gun, but like I understand it and being from the US and my, my grandfather had his uh, license to carry, so he would carry around. So it was a little bit more common for me, but it's like, like you said, it's like, yeah, that wasn't the way that you were kind of shaped. So that's a fair prejudice that you're gonna have to lay down for your own safety and own like simple knowledge of like, hey, this is probably not a great situation. Mm -hmm. Where do you see your personal goals going with regard to volleyball? the podcast and post athletic life? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so in terms of goals, obviously in terms of playing goals, like currently, which will still progress each year or whatever is always just to keep moving up in leagues, keep getting to a bigger stage or a bigger salary or whatever it is for that year. Nothing and special. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. um, so those, and I mean, again, those are obvious goals. So that's not even something, you know, that really needs to be talked into, but in terms of the podcast, I wanted to just kind of go as long as we can keep it going. Like, I mean, I would love to be like 60 years old, still doing that podcast and still shooting it around with Pete and Galloway. Um, and, you know, we did, I still have to cut this up actually. And it's killing me. I'm doing all the editing for our stuff. Cause Peter and Callaway are even worse on electronics than me. And Callaway is like, works crazy hours. Peter actually, Peter just moved to your neck of the woods. Peter's out in Arizona. Oh really? Yeah. He just moved out there. He took an assistant coaching job at Grand Canyon. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll connect you with him or something. And I mean, he just moved out there, so he doesn't know much of anybody. You guys can maybe link up or play or something. I don't know. But I'll give you his number for sure. Sounds good. Um, so, like, I would love to be able to keep that going. And we just vlogged some stuff. So, like I was saying, they have crazy schedules. So, I do all the editing um, on my super shitty computer. And uh, so, I'm, like, we did a vlog out in Wapaka. We do, like, these Top 4 Tuesdays things. And we're trying to find our other ways to branch out. Because we also want to make this into some sort of form of, like, a business where we're selling merch and all this other different type of stuff. Like, the purpose and goal of our podcast was never to make money off of it. But it was also, like, well, you know, if we get the platform where it's something that people want, like, if they want to buy a shirt, like, we would love to sell a shirt. Like, why not? Um, so, the podcast, I don't think there's really any goal other than to grow my only goal for the podcast in the future even I think even if I'm 40 still doing it and I get asked the same question it'll probably still be just to grow like keep trying to reach out to more people and also to like make people feel a lot more comfortable because whenever we get on like we had on Eric Shoji and Dustin Watt and those guys are the huge platform that are known by all these people like to get them to kind of voice things that they go through and like struggles and all this I think it helps people calm like some of their anxiousness or anxiety about it 
because they hear they're literally the best in the world are going through the same stuff. And it's like, gives them kind of that friend to friend basis. So if we can get like even one person who like now loves volleyball because they listen to our podcast or feels more comfortable about where they're at, that would be a big goal for sure. But in terms of literal growth, as long as we're growing and getting more people listening and interested, um, that's kind of our end goal is as many people as we can get to like hear us out and enjoy it, enjoy hearing us out. Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find the podcast? Uh, so we're, we're on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, listen on both of those with all of our episodes. We have a YouTube channel that has some clips, actually. There's a really funny Micah Ma story when we interviewed him, and he had two unreal stories. So those are up on our YouTube. And then we have an Instagram page, uh, 4.24, um, spelled out. So F-O-U-R dot T-O dot F-O-U-R. Um, uh, anyway, I think we have a Facebook page, too. So I think that those are the ones. So YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Instagram, and Facebook. Sorry, it took me forever to get there. Across all platforms. Well, man, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciated our conversation. You're an unbelievably interesting person. I can't wait to hopefully see you again in Europe. It was really cool to play against you in Denmark and wish I would have been able to finish up the season and play you again. Yeah, I know. I know, man. And for sure, thank you so much for having me on. This thing was incredible. I've always watched it and I really enjoyed it. Um, so I'm really happy we were able to link up and do this. And I think that you are like, you, you impress me a lot with just the way that you think about things and that you're able to present it. Like, that's why I was so excited to do this one. Cause a lot of times, like not just podcasts, cause I haven't done many where I've been interviewed, but I've done interviews and stuff. And a lot of times you can just see, it's like, here's my questions. Like, here's the funny stuff that we want to get for a cool clip. It's like, yours is very genuine and deep. Like I was not ready to get this far into like a heavy conversation. I was stoked that we did. It was a ton of fun, but I, I respect it a lot. I thought it was incredible. Like that was probably one of the best I've gone through. So I appreciate that. You're an absolute killer, man. I, I can't believe it. You're very well articulated. I have a, I suspect that a part of that is telling the truth and another part is running your own podcast and learning how to speak. I think those are two very important things that you seem to encapsulate quite well in your person. For sure. And I, I agree completely. Those are definitely two big goals of mine. So I'm glad that you noticed them. Yeah, no, you're killing it, man. Hopefully, uh, although I'm, I'm going to bring all my podcast stuff over to Denmark with me. So we, yeah, I'm, I'm doing the same. So we'll, we're definitely, we would love to get you on four to four as well, for sure. Yeah, man, I'd, I'd love to uh, have an actual sit down with you and Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I know if we could do it in person, even Denmark and Germany aren't that far apart, right? That would be one of my first in-person podcasts since COVID. So that would be quite that the treat. Be, that would be awesome. Let's see if we can work it out. But anyway, thanks a ton for having me on all shout out back to you. League of Josh, you were awesome. This was, I can't thank you enough. Thanks a ton, Brandon. Really appreciate it.